uh, tonight. So let's read together Obadiah, verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink and and they shall swallow down and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. And there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. We find in this uh, book of Obadiah, of course, we've been studying now for several weeks, um, that there are two divisions within this uh, book of prophecy. It's, a, once again, it's the shortest of the minor prophets. It's the shortest Old Testament book that there is. And there are two divisions, verses 1 through 14, which are specific to Edom and God's judgment and his wrath and upon the people of Edom. And then also verses 15 through 21, in which the day of the Lord, the final judgment and the future establishment of God's kingdom is foretold. So we, we looked last week at verse 15, and I want to review that again briefly as we continue in verses 16 and 17 this evening. We began reading in verse 15, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. The day of the Lord, as we've discovered, refers to God's ultimate and his final judgment upon the wicked. This day is foretold in both the Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, just a few of the references you see in Ezekiel 32 through 3, Joel 1.15, Amos 5.18 and 20, Zephaniah 1.14 through 18. So these specifically refer to the great day of the Lord or the day of the Lord or or something along that line, which is referencing this great day of judgment. Then in the New Testament, a few of the references, Acts 2.20, in which Peter, of course, is referencing or quoting from Joel's prophecy. Then 1 Thessalonians 5.22 and 23, which is an extremely uh, interesting uh, passage of Scripture, as well as uh, chapter uh, 5 in the first verses, it, it actually deals with that. 2 Peter 3, 9, and 10, and these references refer again to the day of the Lord as God's final and absolute judgment, and this is as it is foretold in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Yet we also saw how that this day will as well usher into reality the eternal kingdom of our God and His Christ. Wherever we find God's judgment, this is so um, important for you to consider within uh, the study of God's Word, wherever we find God's judgment, wherever we find His wrath poured out upon the wicked, we also, in contrast, will find His mercy and grace extended to His people. And so you don't find God's wrath without finding His mercy and grace also present, not to the same people, but to others who are now in His grace and mercy. Uh, we find this to be true as well in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. After reading Revelation 20, 11 through 15, then you get to Revelation 21 and you see that, that this is so. Such a prophecy of coming judgment, as we've mentioned, it, we must continue to view it with an eternal perspective. I mentioned last week that much too often men are prone to view such a promise as the day of the Lord, as final and ultimate judgment of God, as uh, to, to view such a promise with skepticism due to having a limited view of eternity. This limited view is often the result of man's perception 
of time based on his own short lifespan. So it's, we, we view often the promises of God, hence in Second Peter, the scriptures reference this in relation to how that men uh, doubt or are skeptical concerning the, the coming of a, the promise of his coming. And they say things continue uh, as they've always been. I pointed out last week that that's actually a false premise as well because this world is not as it was created. It, it's already suffered the judgment of, of God, a worldwide flood which destroyed the world as it was created and left behind it the remnants which we see today. And so uh, that in itself is a false premise upon which the statement is even made. But furthermore, it's the skepticism that's present because men are so subjective in their view of God's word and God's promises, even even to the the point that we view things uh, as based upon our own lifespan and so we consider things to be a long time based upon the expected lifespan of any man or upon the, our own expected lifespan, or we gauge it even upon the time which we've already lived up to this point in time. And so we begin to think of things as being long or being drawn out when really they're not from an eternal perspective at all. And remember, I gave you an example of that even in Peter's epistle where he speaks of uh, a day, he uses the simile as and saying, one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. Now, again, that's not literally saying that 1,000 years is one day. And the reason we say that is because there is no day, there are no days with God. He is in the ever-present now. He is in the eternal now. And there is no shadow of turning with him. There is no darkness. There is no night in, in where the Lord is in terms of eternity. And so that being understood, that then we know that even in that simile, it's a comparison that is being provided for us to give us an understanding that we do comprehend, saying, okay, so a thousand years is like a day in the sense of how, how we should be viewing this instead of viewing it as this long extended period of time because of our own short lifespans. And so it's important that we recognize that and, and understand the reason men are so skeptical in relation to the passing of time concerning the promises of God. He goes on to say in verse 15, As thou hast done... It shall be done unto thee, thy reward shall return upon thine own head. So the Lord promised to reward Edom according to Edom's wickedness. And this is all the heathen as well, though, because he says, again, in the first part of verse 15, he said, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. But then he says, as thou hast done. Now, that's to all the heathen, but I think specifically we still see Edom to be in the picture here. So as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee, thy reward shall return upon thine own head. The Lord promised to reward Edom according to Edom's own wickedness, and men deserve to suffer under the wrath of God by virtue of being Adam's offspring. We must remember that. No man is immune from the guilt of sin, and therefore no man is undeserving of God's judgment. And we must keep that in mind as well, because if we're not careful, we begin to view ourselves or view others even as though they should not suffer under such wrath. But all men are wicked inherently. And again, the, the danger is that we begin to view wickedness or goodness or holiness or righteousness at, based upon our own definition of what these things are rather than what God declares them to be. And so if we do such, then we, can begin, then we will begin to compare or to look at others maybe uh, from a perspective of thinking that they aren't really as bad off as they are. Because, you know, after all, these are good people. You've often heard that said, right? And I know what we mean when we say such things. But you'll hear people often mention, oh, those are good people. These may be people that are absolutely wicked in terms of rejecting Christ, don't love the Lord, have no, won't even acknowledge God even possibly. And yet people talk about them being good people based on their 
on their human perspective of them on things that they do or things that they don't do. But we must remember that we have no righteousness to offer to God. We are void of all righteousness. We have nothing in which we can offer. I was uh, mentioning Saturday morning in our prayer time with the men that Matthew uh, chapter uh, 5 with the uh, Sermon on the Mount or Beatitudes and the very one that it began, Jesus begins when he began preaching and he said, blessed. And by the way, again, I'll mention this just because I need to. This, these, are not, uh, these are not prescriptive um, in their character. In other words, the scriptures aren't saying, oh, if, if you want to be blessed, then be this. No, it's, it's descriptive. Jesus is describing with definitive terms these individuals. And he is saying, he's saying, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. And when he says blessed are the poor in spirit, he is saying happy are the poor in spirit. And the poor in spirit is referencing those who are spiritually bankrupt. And so he is saying that they have absolutely nothing to offer. And so happy are those who understand and recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. That's what's being stated. That itself, again, reminds us that we have no righteousness which we can offer unto God. There is nothing spiritually eternally good or valuable that we possess that we can offer unto him. And so we have to remember all of these things from a, an eternal and spiritual perspective, of course. So now we be, um, as we continue uh, to study this portion of the text, we see in the second division of Obadiah's prophecy, Obadiah continues to explain how God would justly reward Edom according to his wicked ways. Look at verse 16. He had just made the statement, again, verse 15, the latter part, as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. Now, the heathen were guilty of this, but so were the people of Edom. They participated, as we've seen and we'll consider again tonight. Look at verse 16. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. There are two predominant truths that are distinguished, again, by a simile here in this text, that comparison using like or as, that are stated within this verse that must be recognized so that we have a better understanding of the overall prophecy of God's judgment, even as it's being pronounced in verse 16. First of all, it says, of course, for as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain. Edom had drunk, if you will, the, the, from the cup of or wine of victory over God's people. Smith and Franklin commented, apparently Edom drank in celebration of Babylon's victory over Jerusalem. Although Edom was the brother to Israel, remember, because we're talking about Jacob and Esau. Edom are Esau's people. They're, they're his lineage, and so his offspring, if you will. And so Edom and, and, and Israel were brothers in that respect. As we've discovered from multiple examples in the Old Testament, even though they were brothers, Edom was an enemy of Israel all the, all the same. And this reference to Edom having drunk upon the holy mountain is stated in reference to Edom celebrating in the Babylonian victory over Israel. Every invasion, you have to remember with Israel, every invasion resulting in captivity was a clear act of God's judgment upon his people. And yet, as we expounded in our study two weeks ago in Obadiah, Edom boasted and rejoiced in the calamity that came upon Israel. So again, here in in this verse 16, Obadiah is again referring to what he's already stated in the previous verses, which is in relation to past history of what Edom had done and how they had regarded or disregarded Israel 
and how that they not only, if you will, were hands off in, a, in, in helping or assisting them, but they were part of the problem with them being taken into captivity. Edom participated in this, and that's what the scriptures point out. In verse 12 of our same, uh, of Obadiah, the same prophecy, look with me. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Looked refers to examine, inspect, or spy. And again, the use of the word in this context implies that Edom was gloating in Israel's adversity. Israel is being invaded. Jerusalem is being invaded. Their homeland is being invaded. And they are going to be taken away captive by large. And instead of Edom standing with them, instead of Edom fighting for them, Edom is rejoicing in their adversity. They, they were glad for this. They were happy this was happening. Verse 12 goes on to say, Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. The verb rejoiced means glad. And remember, you have Judah and Israel here. This is all literally part of Israel, but you have the divided kingdom. And in the divided kingdom, you have, of course, uh, the ten tribes of Israel. And then you have uh, Judah and, of course, Benjamin, which would make up the two uh, other tribes in which the kingdom was now divided. So Judah is mentioned here separately. And yet the fact of the matter is it's still all part of Israel ultimately. And in reality, the twelve tribes, if you will, though they are now divided. So Edom rejoiced in Israel's uh, adversity and in Judah's uh, destruction, if you will, when they were uh, under attack. The implication is that the destruction of Judah made Edom glad and they were happy with their calamity as they rejoiced in the adversity of Israel. Verse 12 goes on to say, Neither should us have spoken proudly in the day of distress. And the adverb proudly refers to a boastful mockery. Edom was boastful in, the, in mocking the anxiety of his brother, of those of Israel and Judah. Verse 13 Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Again, Edom is rebuked for mocking the calamity of his brother. They were not helping or assisting, obviously. Then we see as well that, that in, in these passages that the drinking on the mountain obviously is in reference to the fact that they were rejoicing in the calamity. They were rejoicing in the destruction. They were glad that the people were being taken into captivity. And they were therefore wickedly involved with the wicked who were being used of God as a means of, of judgment upon his people. But that didn't mean that Edom should have joined in on it or been glad in it. Um, let me give you like an, an analogy here in a sense, if you will. Uh, as the church of the Lord Jesus, as his body, as, his, as his, those who are espoused to be his bride, uh, we should never rejoice when others fall in sin or God is judging others for their sin. That's not something that should cause us to be glad. We, 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 uh, we give God glory, honor in all things. We, we are thankful that God corrects us. He chastens us. And, and we're thankful that he chastens other brothers and sisters. I'm glad he does that. He does not just let us go. But that doesn't mean we are rejoicing in their adversity or as the Lord is correcting them and rebuking them. We should not at the same time be uh, coddling them, though we can comfort them in righteousness, we should not coddle them in their sin and wickedness or in the time of judgment as though they are, are, are not deserving of this in the sense of that they, this shouldn't be how it is. And so we need to be careful and cautious and, and take heed to the warning and be aware. For remember this as well. In fact, the Scripture says, if you remember in Galatians chapter 6, the Scripture says that uh, if a brother be overtaken in a fault, either spiritual, restore such a one. Now, the restoration process is not, does not mean you just 
pick them up and say, okay, come on back in where you know. It's that we are, we are instructing, exhorting, rebuking. We are helping them along the way in this fault, in a sin or what have you. And that we are, we are reminded. Why, what is he going to say? He warns us that we as well are just as prone to such a thing. And we are to be mindful of that. And so here Edom, of course, is rejoicing in their, the adversity of his brother and rather than uh, walking in truth or in righteousness. Number two, we see Edom and all the wicked would drink in the wine of God's wrath. In verse 16, he goes on to say, now let's go back to the beginning of verse 16. For as, notice this, as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain. This is no doubt in reference to the fact of their, their rejoicing and, and their um, glad, they were gladdened at the fact that there was uh, the Babylonian captivity, captivity. But then in verse 16, he goes on to say, So, as you drunk then, so shall all the heathen drink continually, yea, shall they, they shall drink and they shall swallow down. As the verse further, further states here, just as Edom had drunk the wine of Babylonian victory over Israel in celebration of the calamity and judgment of God upon the people, so Edom and all the heathen would drink and be consumed by God's wrath. In the book of Jeremiah, the Lord tells of his judgment upon the wicked. Jeremiah 25, 15, and 16 we read. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this fury at my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. And they shall drink and be moved and be mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Furthermore, in verse 21, Edom is among the people and nations listed in this declaration of God's judgment in Jeremiah 25. Just verses later, Edom is named in Jeremiah's prophecy concerning those who would drink the wrath, uh, the cup of God's wrath, those who would receive the judgment of God. Verse 16 goes on to say of our text, Obadiah, and they shall be as though they had not been. Now once again, here we see a reference being made to the final and absolute judgment of God upon the wicked, including Edom. Notice the statement. They shall be, once they've, they'll drink, they've drunk in the victory uh, 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 the Babylonian captivity, and so they and all the wicked will now drink of the cup of my wrath, and they shall be as though they had not been. Here's what he's saying. There will be no remembrance of them left. There will be nothing of their, uh, uh, they'll have no posterity, and there will be nothing of them left of which they can boast or which others will boast and say, oh, this was great Edom. No. He said, it'll be as though they've never been. I'm wiping them out. I'm destroying them. The Lord would not only devastate, but he would destroy the nations and people to the degree that there was no remembrance of them as though they had never existed. The final judgment of God will be an absolute judgment. God will totally destroy the earth and all the wicked who dwell therein. Let me, let me interject something here. If you, though, let me rephrase that. Those who are not believers in Jesus Christ, all men are aware that death is inevitable. We, we know that. Men know that. Regardless of what they claim to believe or not believe, they know that death is inevitable. They know they will not live forever in the flesh. They know that. And so there's something that has for years been, and it's actually been, I'm sure, in a sense, since man's fall in the garden, but we see it to be prevalent in recent decades and even maybe centuries or so, where there's something that men long to leave behind and it's summed up in one word what is it legacy people are so focused on legacy think about that for a moment why 
Well, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. It may be that they want to have done something worthwhile in life that they feel like that when they're dead, their life wasn't a waste. I'm talking unbelievers now, specifically. Another reason might be this, simply because of pride, because they can't live in this body forever, and so they want to have something they can be proud of. They want their name. They want people to remember their name. To what end? To what avail, really? But still, that's something they desire, right? Here's what I'm saying to you. Remember this. Either you will live for God's glory and his eternal purpose, not concerned about a legacy at all. I'm not talking about your testimony or walking with God. I'm talking about leaving something behind for which you are remembered, a legacy. You will either live in submission and committed to God's eternal purpose and the gospel being propagated and recognizing that the only thing that matters is at the end of your life that it is a testimony unto the glory of God and it is a furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or you will live your life attempting to hang on desperately to this idea that you can leave something behind that you've done that is worthwhile and meaningful. Now let me show you the irony here. Edom was not interested at all in God's people, in God's purpose at all. They were with the wicked. And what does God say about what could have been their legacy? He says, I'll make it as though they've never existed. The very thing for which men strive to live, to leave behind, God is saying the wicked will be utterly destroyed in which there will be no remembrance of them. Now, that does not mean that some wicked person will die today or tomorrow and that they won't be remembered at all. No, but in the end, they will not be remembered. Legacy means nothing in that regard, nothing. And it's important that you understand that. Don't live for your legacy. Live for God's glory. (laughs) That's the difference. You're going to do one of the two. You're either going to live trying to leave something behind worthwhile in your life, or either you're going to say, there's nothing worthwhile I can leave behind other than submitting myself to God, that his glory be demonstrated and manifested in through my life. And God says, I'll just wipe them out. There'll be no remembrance of them. As we referenced within our last study, there are multiple verses of Scripture which explain this day of judgment that's being referenced. 1 Thessalonians 5, um, uh, 2 and 3. I keep saying 22. I'm sorry. It's verse 2 and 3. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now this is talking about the day of the Lord. This is talking about the day of final judgment, the time in which God is going to execute his wrath upon all the wicked. Second Peter 3, 9 and 10. We read these last week. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. But as long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Everything will be destroyed. No legacy there. Revelation twenty eleven through 15. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Notice that very interesting. 
this is very interesting. Those who were not found in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. This is obviously in reference to the Lamb's book of life. That's not the only book of life mentioned. But this is talking about those who were not in the Lamb's book of life, the book of life, the one that matters, eternal book of life. Um, let me give you a reference here. If you remember, also we're told that in the Old Testament that Moses requested God would blot his name out of the book of life. He wasn't talking about the Lamb's book of life. He's talking about from his very existence, that God would just kill him is what he's saying. This is talking about the Lamb's book of life. This is talking about those who are redeemed. Anyone who would or will be redeemed, these are those in the, in the book of life that's being referenced. And here he says that whoever was not found, whose name was not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's no record of them. They're non-existent. I mean, they, they are perishing forever, but it's as though they had never existed. Think about this for a moment. The only, the only memorial that stands is that your name is in the Lamb's book of life. <laughs> that you are known by God and you know Him. That's it. And the rest are just going to perish forever without remembrance. As we continue to verse 17, we're once again reminded, as I mentioned a moment ago, of this glorious truth, that wherever we find God's judgment, we also see His grace and mercy demonstrated and extended to His people. So while Edom and all the heathen nations are being destroyed under God's wrath, we also see in verse 17 that the Lord has a remnant upon which He will demonstrate and display His grace and mercy. Look at verse 17. But, here's a contrastive conjunction again, he's stating But, in contrast to those being completely wiped out as though they had never existed, upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The noun deliverance means survivor or something or someone who remains or escapes. And holiness in this text means holy area or sanctuary. And while it was Mount Zion, God's chosen place of dwelling, that had been ransacked, Jerusalem was ransacked, In his judgment of his people, God would deliver his remnant from utter destruction and restore restore a holy sanctuary. He says in Isaiah 4, 2 through 4, In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. Here Jeremiah is referencing, or Isaiah is referencing this very truth. After having pronounced judgment upon the heathen, including those among Israel who believed not, the Lord then not only declared his grace and mercy in faithfully restoring these called by his name, but also declared that they would possess the remnant of Edom and all the heathen. In Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, we have a little more insight into this. In that day, will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all, of all the heathen, which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. So he's saying that, that his people would then receive of the remnant of all the wicked, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will begin or bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. 
And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall be no more pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. So again, in the middle of all this judgment and God declaring he's going to destroy Edom and the wicked and make them as though they had never existed, they'll have no legacy, they'll have no remembrance, anything of which can be claimed, oh, this is great about Edom. Yet we find in the following verse, in verse 17, where God is declaring his faithfulness to restore his people. We must remember this truth, that God is faithful in his righteous judgment of the wicked, And he is also faithful in his righteous grace and mercy towards those he has called unto himself. The Lord is gracious and full of mercy. As we previously discovered from the book of Nahum, and I want to read this again to emphasize this truth. I read this to you last week, but I want you to see this again. In Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 7, listen to what's stated. We'll read verses 2 through 6, then move into verse 7. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Again, you read those first six verses, and here you have absolutely the the, the, uh, terror of the Lord and his judgment and his wrath. And who can stand? Who Who will give answer to him? Who will stand before him? Who will argue their case before him? But then notice verse 7. The next verse states, The Lord is good. (laughs) Well, is that true? Of course it is. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. So you find six verses of God's fury and his wrath and his judgment, and the next verse says the Lord is good. He is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. But that statement's only realized by those who know him by those who are his redeemed. For the Lord is a God of terror for the unregenerate. But for those who are redeemed, he is our heavenly father. And we can come to him without fear in the sense of being scared. We can come to him in reverence of who he is. But yet we've been given entrance and access to him by our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord is good. God's wrath is is holy wrath, just wrath, and there's no man that does not deserve the wrath of God. But let me remind you of this. There is no man who does deserve the grace, mercy, and love of God. So if you've received of the grace, mercy, and love of God in Jesus Christ, take heed lest you boast in something you have no right to boast in, for you have no right to boast in anything other than Jesus Christ by whom you've been made recipients of this grace, mercy, and love of God. So again, I remind you of this truth as all this judgment's being pronounced and God's utter destruction upon the wicked. The day of the Lord will come in which the earth will pass away. No remembrance of the wicked at all. They'll be perishing throughout all eternity, but no remembrance of them. But I remind you that you are no more undeserving 
you no more deserve the grace and mercy of God than any other person. And you no more, or you are not any less deserving of his judgment and his wrath than any other person. If that's the case, then it's not grace. Think of that. And so as we consider those who, again, abide under his wrath, those who who are living under the the impending judgment and wrath of God, which will one day be poured out in Romans 2.5, as the Scripture so clearly states, may we as stewards of the gospel be faithful in declaring the truth of the judgment and wrath of God which shall come and do so humbly with thankful hearts that God has rescued us, that he has delivered us from such judgment. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again.